Sin Carriers, a West Side Fairy Tales story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further, it takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Sin Carriers, the Grand Ball Arc came to a stunning conclusion as Sue returned an act of violence against her person tenfold, cutting the disgraceful Colt Wiggles to ribbons and tossing him off the train. She also shot two other men, his accomplice, Coakley, and Don Bishop, who tried to intercede on Wickless's behalf. Sue soon lost consciousness from a nasty concussion in the driver's compartment, providing a tempting meal for Garvey, but Gatto interceded on her behalf, reminding the new Imago of the pecking order to which he now belonged. And, following in the desert as always, the rider found himself a new hound dog. On this episode of Sin Carriers, our surviving travelers disembark at the next town, a ghostly remnant of civilization sitting on poles atop a fetid, oil-laced swamp. Vicky finds a familiar secret in the post-exchange. Miskel nurses Dawn through a fever brought on by the gunshot wound from Sue, rifles through Wickless's effects, and makes a tough decision. With only one woodpile left to tempt the crew, will they manage the rest of this trip in safety, or will one of their numbers succumb to the call? Now that Garvey has embraced his inner self, what will he do with his newfound power? And just what changes has Toller gone through? We may find the answers to these questions and more on this, the 13th episode of Sin Carriers and beginning of the Sunken City arc, Swamp. Tolliver, God the voice said. He was only partially himself. A great bubble again. No, not the bubble. The bubble was around him, grand and amniotic and glowing. Patterns like a sundress draped over a pregnant woman's belly glowed over him, and he reached out with babbling glee toward them. His eyes had become myopic, drowned in the ethereal red of the womb he'd rebuilt for himself. This liminal dream space tightened around his throat on the second knock and began choking him on the third. There was no great, comforting womb, no sundress pattern beyond the firm flesh of his mother's belly, just dewy curtains pressed against a window and the early morning sunlight. His breath caught on something thick and foul inside his throat, and he fell coughing from the bed. It loosened and joined the slurry on his carpet. He whispered to himself. Liquid had filled his compartment again while he was sleeping, rising shin-high in places. Objects knocked loose by his confused, naked stumbling the night before were now suspended in pinkish jelly. Tolliver fumbled after a damp set of trousers resting on the surface, failing for several seconds until, for some reason, they simply floated to him. His other clothes placed themselves where they needed to be as well, and Tolliver felt his bones rotating to allow his body to be dressed. What on earth? Bot gasped, jumping out of the way as Tolliver crashed into the hall. The man, so to say, looked up and down the train, 
His fishbowl-shaped head shivering about on a great ball of fluid sporting Tolliver's usual bland three-piece suit. Vaught could only tell where it was looking thanks to the improbable mustache shifting about on the face. Tolliver looked down at his feet and, flexing some muscle he didn't know he had, filled the shoes with himself and forced the soles against the floor. The clothes followed suit. Very well, very well. Tolliver whispered. He took a deep breath, steadying himself against the wall as the few hard parts left in him clicked and popped and fitted themselves back into place. Vaught shivered and looked away, pulling a small flask out of his pocket and taking a long drink. Tolliver watched this new flesh clarify into a familiar, mottled pink. I didn't know you drank, Mr. Vaught. He finally said. Vaught flinched. I don't. He replied, closing the metal cap. Tolliver licked his lips. It's a measure of politeness to offer a fellow chap a drink when one brings out a flask, you know. He said. He tried to adjust his coat the way he usually did to emphasize a point, but the fabric felt too thin to risk trying. I usually carry one myself, you see. Though not because I enjoy drinking. Rather... Having a flask on hand is a fine way to begin a conversation. Hmm. I began this practice some years ago, after speaking to a fine gentleman outside a bookstore in East London. I hate the British. They're absolutely loathsome, ill-bred things, truly ill-bred, in-bred. You know I'm English, right? Mr. Vaught said. Portrait, the North Country. Well, certainly. So surely you know what I'm talking about. Tolliver said, sucking in a great breath and trying to adjust his coat again. This time it felt far more normal. His ankles, now formed again from simple human flesh, felt a gush of fluid fall over them, filling his shoes in the hallway. Vaught cursed and jumped back again, this time barely keeping his boots dry. The English, Tolliver said in a low voice. I've always somehow found myself compared to them no matter what I do or how I deliver myself to the world. I am an American, God damn it, from Pittsburgh. Those paltry English cities with their classes, hovels and workhouses, sleep houses. Have you ever seen a coffin house? Yes, I slept in them a few times before coming here. Vaught said. He had relaxed, but kept a close eye on the wetness about Tolliver's ankles. Coffin houses. Men sleeping as in graves, sir, and stinking like the dead. All in rows, I saw them. My father took great care to show me the English to have me compared to them at every chance. My brother, Gulliver, spared them no love and would mock he was left behind. Father loved him, though he was publicly scolded as a matter of image. But I, me, I was forced to walk among them, the English. I would go with Father to your great plantations to see all the free Britons milling about in old muddy huts in the shadows of castles. Castles, mansions, great worthless lawns of grass and starving townships. G- 
gutters of mud and shit lining every emerald field. And all your countrymen... Not anymore, Vaught interrupted. How's that? I'm an American, the little man said, giving Tolliver a curt nod. Then you know, Tolliver said, eyes bright. He pointed, sweating now. You know what a man is worth in that disgusting mire of a country. All around, Father would parade me, showing me these dusty, half-alive manners and their ghastly occupants. All ages, all sexes, all of them dipped in silk and pipe smoke and absolutely perfect. Perfect manners, perfect elocution, perfect understandings of when to ask after soup. Just how much to hold in your spoon. And they were poor, at least by our standards. All of them heavily in debt and taking mortgages upon mortgages on their properties to keep up this facade of Britishness, wealth and poise, but nothing behind it. I would be shown treasures from conquests a hundred years past, regaled by stories of barbarism. In countries I love far more than Britain. And not a one of them had any skill aside from presenting themselves as better than anybody you'd ever met. They were stupid. To the point of illiteracy. Unless you mention some dead Englishman and then they would start popping off lines of this or that they'd memorized. It's some boarding school like fucking organ grinders monkeys draped in lace. Tolliver swayed. His face grew flush. He felt quite drunk on something, though he hadn't had a drink essentially the entire time they'd been on the train. Then again, he knew what it was. Deep down, he could smell it. Sweat. Blood. The liquids of life. He licked his lips. Are you done, Tall? Summers, Tolliver said. Only summers in England... Father hated the mud, you see. And every road in fucking England is paved with mud. Mud and slop-eyed peasants. How I fucking hated them. Talentless, penniless. But for some reason to the man, excited about their Britishness. The empire, they always call it. It's not much of an empire in my estimation. A man can only hold so many limes. But most of all, these peasants I hated. There is no better slave on earth than an English peasant, my father liked to say. They are stupid beyond measure and easily excited by the slightest nod of a rich man's cap. They love their servitude and expect next to nothing in return save to say they love the kindness shown to them. You see, father remains a proponent of the tenets of slavery... But some men are born to work and others are born to own and to control. No fan of Marxists, that's for sure. (laughs) He laughed. (laughs) Fought did not join him. It was a selfish laugh, in any case. (sighs) He believes southern slavery accomplished much, but was too extreme in its implementation. Tolliver continued. It sought to excuse itself of the moral wrong of forced servitude through treating men and women as animals. This is wrong, he said, because they were not animals and treating them as such is a constant reminder of their fractiousness and wild nature. 
even lesser men, Negroes, Indians, Papists, are still men. It must be given such as a simple man is due to keep them attendant. Food, shelter, dignity, and obedient women. Obedient. Yes. If you give a man those things, he'll never come to you with his hand out for a penny more. Because lesser men are stupid. But great men are born amongst the filth and refuse amongst the peasantry. And systems which preclude them from achievement will arouse suspicion and grievance in their hearts. They will strike at the walls of their pen. In this, the English system is a failure. Though its failure hasn't yet caught up to it. You see, amongst the perfect docility of the English is brewing a silent revolution. Men who see the inbred nobility for its weakness, its venality... They will learn better politic from us Americans than any that have ever existed. These low men will scratch gold from the dirt and rise up like smoke through the walls of power. They will buy titles and land from underneath the old order and rule that rotten kingdom from thousands of miles away. They will sell whatever you think of as England to every corner of the earth. It will belong to Arab merchants and Chinese opium sellers and whatever becomes of the Russians. I don't care about any of that, Tolliver! God damn it! Vaught said. He was well and thoroughly trapped between this wet, sweating mess of a theorist and the door to the dining car. A foul enough predicament, but one still heavily weighted in the direction of listening to Tolliver's conspiracies. He took another drink. Give me some of Tolliver said in a hushed tone. No, Vaught replied, holding the flask away from Tolliver even though they had some space between them. Tolliver pouted and wagged his finger at Vaught. English, he said. English. Always thinking about English things and considering the greatness of England. Talking about what if the colonies had stayed subject to their king. None of them with a speck of interest in things outside their own lands and titles. Worthless. All of them. No skills. No understanding of trade or barter or the trading of stocks. They hate money. Talking about it, you see. Because money is something you're born with if you're them. Ladies need only to flop about on their imported couches and wait for some rich American cock to come strutting through the door. Once upon a time, a foreign prince or such, perhaps... But not now. No Latvian king is trying to find his third wife in fucking Stockton Parish. They might find me, of course. Because father is interested in mushing up my parts with some English China doll to gain access to some old fucking rock landing her father owns in fucking Gibraltar of all places. He had me pushed into some dandy English suit and I had to ride around for days on horses and carriages, never quite talking to her and fielding questions from all these spies. Spies! Everywhere, upstairs, downstairs. People in the village. What is he like? What does he do? I was 17! I thought about women and killing myself. That's all I did. Gulliver. Tolliver's mood darkened. He seemed wholly himself now possessed by some new locomotion that clenched his hands and straightened his spine. His belly even seemed to have disappeared, giving him a shape like a caning awl. Gulliver ruined everything. 
Even though I thought I was already unhappy, he told me, you're only here because you are just like them. You've got nothing to offer the family. He's marrying you off like a daughter. You see, he was right. I was like them. These inbred English poofs with their soft, gentle hands and their perfect manners. I was useless. I was riding with that girl, thinking about it, and I pushed her down and ripped her dress and slapped her breasts a few times. She was sweating, and, and it drove me mad to see it on her skin like that. When I, when I was so forward, she seemed excited for the first time since I'd met her. She wanted me, for whatever reason, and that so repulsed me I left her in the mud and rode home alone. Jesus Christ, Tolliver, Vaught said, resigned. Give me some of whatever that is, Tolliver said, holding out his hand. Vaught glared at him. No, he replied. I don't know what's the matter with your... with you, but I'm sure if you touch my flask, I won't want it back. I don't fucking care what you want, Tolliver shouted. The walls rang. Vaught wished right then he'd just left Tolliver to sleep. Getting the man up on account of the violence in the back cars was a formality, and a highly unnecessary one to boot. There were no records being made of these goings-on, and none ever would be. Give me that fucking flask, or I'll stomp you to death, you diminutive shit! You fucking peasant! Vaught spat at Tolliver's feet and chucked the flask at his head. The fat man did nothing to stop the missile. Just let it smack wetly into his face. It stuck there, the cap end vanishing into his cheek. Vaught's skin crawled as the canister slid slowly to Tolliver's mouth. The effect was like seeing a brush glide through the paint on a fresh portrait. Tolliver's lips distended into a tube that twisted up and held the flask to drain into his throat. Then he finished, sniffed the metal and swallowed the entire thing whole. I suppose you won't be getting it back, Tolliver said, the distension of the flask still articulating down his gullet. Vaught said nothing, did nothing, save wish he wasn't there. Tolliver stared at him a moment longer and then turned to leave. Don't touch that pile of wood, Vaught called after him. Tolliver stopped saying nothing but conveying a threat to return with the tilt of his shoulders. Don't you dare. And that's not a warning from me, understand? Be a bully, if you want, Mr. Loeb. But you'd best remind yourself. If you want to talk about lords and such, fine. Remember who's lord of this train. Tolliver turned to give him an ugly look. It made Vaught sad seeing him like that. Tolliver had been an idiot, and indecent, but never cruel. This change was for the worse. And it's not me, sir, Vaught said. Tolliver's eyes flicked from Vaught to the door standing shut behind him. The simple, flat steel had all the cheeriness of a coffin lid. Tolliver snorted and walked away his legs wavering beneath him like a mirage. When he was finally gone, 
Mr. Vaught let himself slump against the nearest wall and slide to the floor. He reached into his pocket for a flask that wasn't there and cursed, tapping the back of his head against the wall and clenching his fists in frustration. Garvey touched the sting the Castellano's knife had left on his neck. He was his old self again, wholly human in so much as he had ever been. Miskell sat beside Don, the latter party now the more injured, holding his head as the man moaned through a laudanum fever dream. The shot the woman had dealt him wasn't bad, a hit through solid meat right of the bone, though it had surely smarted some and now the man was getting sick. The noise of his pain didn't much bother Garvey, though he'd be glad to be clear of it with the train stopping now at station. Station was generous, given what the train pulled up beside was little more than crooked planks and dust. Beyond lay a small town on stilts spread over a fetid morass of still, flat waters that came right up to the rusted train tracks. Pungent oil vapors rose from the water, fresh from the guts of the earth below. A sign behind the platform read, Atalia. Thought we were stopping for repairs, Cutting muttered, sneaking past Garvey to stand on the platform. Nothing here but a bad smell. Down's dead, Garvey said in a low voice. He looked over his shoulder to where the last wood pile lay snug on its platform. It no longer called to him, which was regrettable. He'd enjoyed the connection and the dreams of Moira. He knelt and tasted the fouled pond beneath the platform, stretching his arm nice and long to reach. The waters felt slick and cool against his skin, and left a softening scrim of oil when they dried. What are you doing? Cunning asked. Garvey gave him a chilling look, and the short man rolled his eyes. Garvey stood and watched Cutting Tromp carefully over the swaying bridges leading to the post exchange. Of all the other drivers, Cutting showed him the least respect, but was so neutral and incurious his presence never offended. The man's body was thickly built. He was short compared to the other drivers, but not really fat. Garvey had seen him handle horses with a sureness befitting a man twice his height, but Cutting had never put that strength to use in any dangerous ways. He never fought, never raised his voice, rarely fussed. Curious. He was curious. Only now that everybody else was either dead, disappeared, or injured did Garvey really notice him. He was always around, but always quiet. He'd considered Wickless the most likely one to have called the Pinkertons on their train all those days ago. But that explanation had always felt too easy. Wickless was. Had been, probably. Nothing more than talk most days. It was his only real consistency, save his urges. Could a man like that go on so long without dragging somebody into his machinations? Not likely. He hadn't even been able to rape that violent little chicken hawk with Coakley's help, and now both men were done. Lord, oh Lord, I don't think I'll be selling anything here. The chubby boy, Vicky, said as he stepped out onto the platform. 
Garvey looked him over, but Vicky didn't notice. He was chatting up the black boy and straining his neck to better see the ruins around them. Their feet knocked loose bits of splintered board and dust that fell across the black waters and sent ripples rolling far out of sight. Atalia. I think that's Hebrew. I wouldn't know. Ducky said, noticing Garvey noticing him. The lanky, unsettling man nodded to him and followed the only other unhurt driver across the bridge into town. Ducky spit on the floorboards between them and rubbed his thumb against his forefinger, making a nazar without thinking and shuddering to himself. Hell are we gonna do here? I'm not sure, really, Vicky said. What we are going to do here. Mr. Vaught seemed uh, fairly keen to stop and get fuel, as I recall. But I can't say where he'd find it. The young man swayed a hand over the town before them. It lay at odd angles in the morning sun. Every building rested upon tilted sticks jammed down into the mud beneath the water. It smelled like a sewer, but not so badly they couldn't breathe. I don't like this place one bit, Elam said, joining Ducky and Vicky on the platform. The scarred priest fell in behind him. Adjusting the circular rim of his hat to shade against the sunlight reflecting off the fetid pond. What are we supposed to do here anyway? If anybody lives in this place, I don't want to meet them. Agreed. The priest offered, turning from the others to scout the direction they'd come from. The tracks stretched into the sandy distance, disappearing beneath an arching stone formation that marked the end of the expansive valley they'd been traveling through for days. It was a miracle the train had made it up the slight grade to the formation. The security car had lost a full axle, which had snapped loose and damaged more of the undercarriage. They'd limped toward station through the night, moving no faster than they might have walked. If anything behind us is at least as fast as a horse. We've only got a few hours on them at best. At best, what's the rest? Vicky asked. The priest started to answer him, but he continued. What's the rest at best? The interruption so startled the priest that he blinked several times before attempting to speak again. Vicky coughed and tried to pretend he hadn't done anything odd. Ducky sighed and patted him on the back. The priest coughed. I think we're looking at maybe an hour. There's nothing here to set up the way we have before. It's all too low. He seemed to consider some things while looking over the city and shook his head. We need to cut loose what we can and go. It's my opinion. In a lower voice, he continued, Not that there's much left to lose on this trip. Elam looked at the back car. What about the mad woman we had sleeping back there? He asked. All those assembled averted their gaze or scuffed their feet. A little of both. Is she going to, you know, are we going to turn her over? Fuck no. Ducky said, almost glaring at Elam. The young accountant exchanged glances with the former dock worker, sharing a look with each other neither could fully make sense of. Elam opened his mouth, closed it, and tapped his foot on the ground. A chill rolled over his spine as he heard the years' distant snap of a rope as a body stretched long beneath it. Click. We should probably consider it, the priest said. Interrupting the long silence. They, she, 
She seems like a dangerous person, which is fine for the work at hand. But I'm not sure what place she has in society. He looked at the ground, thinking on old wounds himself. His fingers brushed his throat and then the scar on his cheek. A man who does not seek justice on his own should be delivered to it. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That's the most word I've heard from you all trip, Ducky said, leaning his head to the side. You dress a certain way, but you got all them rifle skills. Why are you so keen on turning her in? The priest searched the ground at his feet and gave Ducky a look of desperation so sudden and conflicted the young man took a step back. Elam raised an eyebrow. For the wages of sin is death. The priest whispered to himself. He began to mutter in Latin, looking then much younger than he actually was. Ducky glanced from him to Elam, who met Ducky's gaze again with that same unfamiliarity and then turned to look at the car where Sue now slept. Gatto had brought her to her bunk and pulled her boots off so she could rest. He told Elam that the little masturbator had probably cracked her skull a bit, but she'd pull through. Well, I'm sorry to say this, but I don't think I'll be allowing any of you to speak to the authorities on Miss Sue's behalf, Vicky said. They all looked at him, that chubby curiosity. He stood with his hands in his pockets, watching Tolliver Loeb follow his daughter and the Russian off the platform. Mr. Vaught hurried along behind them, a serious look on his face. Vicky turned back to the group and smiled, wiping his brow with his arm and picking up his suitcase. The plane of his eyes never met theirs, but he nodded as if they were all in accordance. I don't think so. No. No. He repeated himself, walking away at a brisk pace. I don't think so. What's all this standing about? Tolliver asked, stumbling off the forward cars. The man seemed bent, barely able to walk on his own. Vasily, eyes serious darted around him and made his way toward the post exchange, muttering under his breath. Tolliver tried haranguing the man about something as they got off the train, but Vasily ignored him. Of all the people he might have stopped in front of, of course, Tolliver chose Ducky. He crossed his arms at Tolliver. Well? The fat man asked. Ducky might have just told him to get stuffed, but something seemed terribly off about Tolliver. He stank, for one, though it wasn't a smell Ducky could place. Maybe something close to that smell some folks couldn't ever shake from their breath, or the smell of the terminally old. It was rank and wet, worse even than the swamp beneath them. Moreover, Tolliver's eyes seemed to rock and roll about his skull while he spoke, never quite focusing on Ducky. But he could see, could feel the man's focus on him. It was like the eyes were vestigial, organs awaiting death and replacement by something stronger that lay just behind them. His skin, too, had an inhuman pallor. He'd always been pale, even for a white man. But he seemed a touch clear now, as though his skin were jelly. I, the fuck is wrong with you? Ducky said, stepping back from Tolliver. The man's eyes de-synced in their movements and began looking left and right all at once. 
Tolliver opened his mouth to say something else, but he lost balance just then and nearly careened off the platform. Daddy! Moira shouted, grabbing his arm. She may as well have caught the edge of a fast-moving trolley. The fat man's momentum swept her off her feet and she almost flew right out into the water. Ducky wrapped his arms around her waist like he was catching a bag of rice and arched his back to stay on the platform. Elam grabbed Ducky's shoulders and kept him from going down completely. Then he was standing there with her in his arms like they were about to dance. Something electric rolled up and down Ducky's spine. Moira looked into his eyes, a smile softening her face for just a second, and then she made a horrified expression and pushed his hands off her. She stormed away from him. Yeah, okay, Ducky shouted after her. Elam laughed at him and their eyes met for a second. Both of them fell into awkward laughter into which the priest joined. He was stuck at the far point of the platform behind them, unable to get away. Mildover took a breath and watched Tolliver stumbling near the edge of the platform. The boys were all but clapping each other on the back now, and he could tell part of this act was a powerful insinuation they wouldn't be going to Tolliver's aid. The man seemed even more heavyset now than he did just a moment ago. Wobbly, as though he'd soaked up water like a sponge. He stepped off the platform and Mildover grabbed him by his collar. The man was muttering under his breath about sweat and skin. Fine, fine, Vasily shouted as Mildover dragged Tolliver back onto the platform. There was a sort of hitch in Tolliver's body that felt deeply unhealthy, as though all of him were about to burst like an overfilled leather bladder. Boards groaned beneath him as he cartwheeled his arms for balance. Sweat soaked his collar. Even the rim of his hat seemed puckered. What is the matter with you, Mr. Lowe? Vasily asked. And do not, do not dare tell me some story. I spent all night stitching your men back together like ragdolls. I have ruined two suits on this trip. Two, one hundred dollars. This last bit he muttered under his breath, taking care to glance at Moira. She was clutching her hands nervously, looking back and forth from the scene unfolding around Tolliver to something going on in the water beneath the old post exchange. Um, silly? She asked. Or, um, either of you boys, might might you come here a second? Ducky and Elam exchanged glances, both ready to touch their nose to get out of whatever she'd ask of them. Tolliver fell back just then, and it took both young men to catch him. Oh, fucking Jesus! Ducky shouted. Tolliver's suit jacket had split along the back like the skin of a rotted watermelon, and a foul, bloody gel had burst out over Ducky's arms. He stepped back and tried to flick it off, ripping his entire shirt off when he felt it start to tingle. Fucking bullshit! Ducky watched as his shirt unraveled on the boards. It grew a clear, watery bubble of itself and then drained into the water below through gaps in the decking. The back of his hand burned. A single, tearing bit of heat, but nothing else. What on earth is going on back there? Mildover shouted. Elam had stepped away just as the gel burst through Tolliver's jacket. Don't touch him, Elam said. Something's wrong. What? Vasily asked. Tolliver's head rocked back at an impossible angle and then shot forward, shaking from the force of vomiting onto Vasily's chest. Everybody froze. Mildover took a step back and had to turn his face to keep from vomiting himself. 
Vasily took a quiet, unsteady look down at his trousers and shirt front. Whatever had come out of Tolliver looked and smelled like rotten meat. Something like a jellied bone had stuck to Vasily's belt and now fell to the boards of the platform. Rolling along the downward plane to the closest of the five ramps leading from the train cars to the greater structure. Mr. Torvalds, Tolliver mumbled. His jaw seemed crooked. I am immensely sorry. Vasily screamed something in Russian, snapped his hand to Tolliver's face, and a gun appeared out of nowhere. Elam shouted as well, leapt forward, and pushed Vasily's arm into the air before he could shoot Tolliver in the forehead. The little gun popped several times, bullets whizzing away into the air. Vasily tried to bring the gun down on Tolliver, but Mildover jumped in as well, dragging the man away as best he could while avoiding the gore covering his chest. Oh, the sun! The sun! Tolliver mumbled. His jaw had fallen down into the top of his chest. He stumbled in the direction of the train, finally falling and rolling down the ramp like a wad of hot tar. Ducky shouted. Daddy? Moira asked, picking up her skirts to rush toward her fallen father. Vasily was kneeling with his hands in the air as Mildover tried to fan him off. He seemed to be having some sort of fit. Elam struggled to get the gun off Vasily's arm, but found it was easier to just leave it when he realized Vasily had emptied every cartridge. Ducky, the only one close enough to get a good view of Tolliver watched as the man flattened like hot candy and slithered into the shadows beneath the train. The horses, probably smelling him, began to kick and scream inside their pens. Okay, okay! Vicky shouted from behind them. Mr. Vaught was close on his heels, casting fearful looks to the water beneath the boardwalk. Cascading ripples now distorted the surface. Elam watched Moira run past him in a flurry of blue skirts. Uh, we, we, we need to go. Uh, hey! Elam shouted at her, knowing he needed to warn her about some danger and not knowing quite what that danger was. The red spider on her cheek seemed to glow. Moira searched wildly for her father, not knowing what Ducky had seen. Uh, Miss Logue? He called after her. She cast worried looks at the water around her, thinking the bubbles she was seeing were from her father. Get away from the water, ma'am! Vicky shouted. Miss Moira, get away from the water! Mr. Vaught echoed. Moira looked back at them and then, for some reason, at Ducky. The moment their eyes met seemed to last a touch too long. Elam thought he saw something buried beneath the fear and confusion. Hunger. Something nearly long as a train car and maybe a quarter as wide burst up from the shallows near Moira. She had enough time to see its long, toothy face and the stocky alligator arms it pushed itself along with before it launched itself over top the gangway she stood on, wrapped her in its grasp, and dove back down into the water. Moira! Vasily screamed. Mildover was still holding him, but Vasily knocked the priest loose with a single swipe. The sound of metal hitting bone made Elam wince. The priest's eyes swam and he dropped to his knees, clutching his head. There, uh, there, uh, uh, here, Ducky shouted. He could see Moira beneath the water, a thick arm wrapped around her throat. 
She seemed placid in the thing's grasp. Beneath the oily scrim, her eyes were open and bright and focused on Ducky. Then the thing rolled over and she was gone. Something snapped beneath his feet and the entire platform dropped half a foot. Water kicked up as the thing swam, and they heard snap after snap as it struck the other supports. Where is she? Moira! Vasily shouted, flicking the magazine out of the gun on his arm and sliding in another. Ducky snatched up the empty and ran along with Vicky in the direction of the post exchange. Vicky snatched at his arm. Where are you going? He shouted. I don't know! Ducky replied. Help me with him! Elam shouted, grabbing Vicky and Ducky's attention. The young accountant was trying to drag Mildover in the direction of the post exchange on his own. We need to get, 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 get... Vicky stumbled through his words. The fuck out of, off, out, off! The platform shifted beneath them, splintering and cupping into a deepening bolt shape. The shift in angle nearly threw the lot of them down into the water. Ducky glimpsed Vasily sprinting between two of the stilted houses and then diving into the water. His body cut a long arc across the pale white of the far horizon, and then he was gone. The platform broke away at the furthest edge, sinking beneath the water. It's fucked! It's fucked! Ducky shouted. This dock thing is fucked! Get to where it's not broken! But... Vicky said... He gave the train a worried look and then grabbed hold of Mildover's collar from both sides, dragging him along with Ducky and Elam. Mr. Vaught, having already decided strongly against swimming, had jogged back into the post exchange. Ducky, unable to fit through the door still holding Mildover, was the last to cross the threshold. Before he did so, he tried to make some sense of what was going on, looking back and forth along the crooked central boardwalk that led into town. The entire village seemed to shake and sway as the platform finally broke from its supports and crumbled into the water. Ducky looked to the train, hoping to see Gato or make some sense of where Tolliver had gone. The train remained silent, the area around the tracks empty. God damn it, he said, stepping inside. Vicky walked into the ruined post exchange, finding its condition much better than expected, if still fairly dismal. Chairs remained along the wall, the lot of them bolted flat to the floor with angle brackets attached to the legs. The shelves were emptied, save for the occasional ruined item or unwanted non-perishable. The largest thing was a rot-bloated can of peas, and the smallest a crisp, cardboard box of needles. This he picked up and shook three times before setting it down and walking over to the counter. He'd seen the two remaining well-bodied drivers going in this way after disembarking. They weren't the sort he'd like to spend time with in any case. Garvey was unsettling and cutting had furtive, curious eyes. But with Wickless torn up and tossed off the train, there wasn't much he was worried about in the way of interactions. It seemed it wasn't something he'd have to fret about regardless. Footprints in the black-gray mold covering the floor led into and then out of the post-exchange through a back exit. He had the place to himself. 
hundred houses here for the vultures to pick at. Vicky thought to himself. It was a bothersome concern, the dead town. The way business was done out in the West was as laissez-faire as it got, of which he was sure his bosses approved. Great hands reached out from both coasts and plucked every sweet berry in the West and Midwest until the land went sallow and seedless. He wasn't one for the Marxists. He found them encumbered by self-importance and useless dreams. But it seemed they were right about the dim future of capitalism. More places than not out here along the steel lines between the cities were now dead or dying. They grew useless and withered and were forgotten. Most left as bad as this one or worse. Poison in the air and water. And the people. It made bad business for men like him. He sold typewriters. And a rich man could and would only buy one typewriter. Maybe a dozen for a business. But in the neighborhoods around the cities, literate mothers wanted typing sons and daughters. They all bought typewriters, hundreds, thousands. When these middle-class folk were burdened with money, they unburdened themselves on folk like him. Salesmen, cooks, launderers, and masons. Craftsmen, artists, and writers. Journalists, grocers, and electric men. The trades were endless. But none of them knew what he knew, traveling out into the great dust bowl they were making of the harvest lands. Time was ticking down on America, not rocketing up like the company's Wall Streeters liked to tell him. The cities thrived on the exploitation of Middle America for their businesses. Middle America thrived on the exploitation of the workers and the land, but left little reimbursement. Nothing was planted after harvest save salt kernels left by mining, by oil drilling, stinking water and rising red tides, a void that grew and grew, its wet lips crusted with scabs of gold and printed paper. The bills would come due. That was the only certainty. And his bosses wouldn't be endorsing the checks when they came. They would push every living thing on earth between themselves and the red ledger to keep what they had. It was their way. A way that had filled many, many pockets, including Vicky's own, and probably would up to the Rubicon. He sat his typewriter on the counter inside, wondering when this town had failed and where everybody had run off to. What had filled this small valley with polluted water? And what had this devastation earned? He'd never know. And in all honesty, he'd never try to find out. He pulled up a bar stool and sat at the counter where folks had come to wait on their parcels and eat and drink with each other once upon a time. A greasy pot-bellied cooktop sat cold behind the counter beneath a rack of unfamiliar spices. The labels weren't in English, but the bottles were well-worn. The only pan he could see was glued to the stovetop by dusty, blackened suet. He thrummed his fingers on the bar top and turned to the empty shelves behind him, putting on his best salesman's smile. Could I interest anybody in the future of writing? He asked the void. He could hear arguing, laughing maybe, outside, which he ignored. Vicky slapped the top of his suitcase, which he'd brought along out of habit. What I have here is a marvel of modern technology, the Blackwell Automatic Typewriter. It... It... He sighed. A, a marvel. Something fell to the ground in the open area behind the post exchange. Vicky looked up and saw shadows moving about out there, possibly agitated, 
Certainly more interesting than sitting there talking to ghosts. Hello? He asked, leaving his briefcase on the bar top and walking to the back door. Behind the post exchange lay a short, open-air space cluttered with old barrels and a few dry-rotted milk crates. Past that rose the front of what he could only guess was storage for the exchange itself. The long-term sort where people piled bulk goods that came in and off the trains. The marks of such trade remained. Hooks and pulleys hanging from the rafters and metal wheel tracks marring the wood floor. Somebody cursed and another person laughed. Vicky heard a splash, as though of something big falling into deep water. The heck? He said, stepping inside the building. He found Cutting standing a few yards past the door and somebody else sitting in a chair before him. Maybe Garvey. Vicky stopped short when Cutting stepped back and turned to see who'd walked inside. A fat bladed hunting knife hung from his hand, dripping some dark foulness onto the floorboards. The smell was like rotten fish bursting open in the sun. Vicky gagged and then almost vomited when he better saw the occupant of the chair. Don't worry, Cutting said, wiping his knife off on the thing's knee. There was, at least, the shape of a knee there. Vicky could see clearly the bones of a human leg, though they jutted from pebbled, irregular flesh that lay over top them like a wet curtain. This pale skin formed a tube, like a great worm, that fell off the edge of the chair and then, thinning, wrapping around its legs. Over and through them like so many Mobius ribbons. There was no chance it could move without upending the chair, though it was clear this hadn't happened in a long time. What on earth is that, Cutting? Vicky asked, pointing. He'd backed himself up against the open door and jumped when it creaked behind him. Cutting gave the thing a look. It turned mostly human at the waist, insofar as ribs and shoulders and arms and such were laid out upon the human form. But all else was deeply wrong. Barbed tendrils dangled from the red holes pockmarking its pale chest. Its arms had inappropriate hands, long, with few fingers, thin wrists. Its eyes were crab black and looked to the ceiling. Its mouth opened sideways from its nose to the base of its throat. The broken remains of a human jaw deformed and made into new teeth to join the hundreds of others lining the gullet. It coughed and a slurry of blood belched from its throat and covered its chest. The smell was unbelievable. Vicky watched in silent awe as it reached up and caressed one of the half-dozen skulls hanging in the dark above it. They were, to the number, clean as doctor's models. All of them alabaster white and suspended by webs of red ribbon someone had fixed to the walls and ceiling with penny nails. Somebody began shooting outside and both Cutting and Vicky jumped, looking toward the sound. Beneath them, Vicky heard a great surge of water, felt the waves moving against the time-worn supports beneath the shack. Fiat say, Cutting said, looking toward the gunshots and tapping the dying thing with his knife. Best word would be retiree. He sighed and looked at Vicky. So, what brings you back here? He took a step closer and Vicky smiled, nodded, and ran out the door barely remembering to snatch his briefcase off the bar top.
Miskel watched Don slip in and out of his fever delirium, thinking of the moments leading up to and after the gunshot. He'd have stopped Don if he'd known what the man was doing. They were all so gobsmacked seeing what that woman had done to Wickless, he was surprised Don could move in the first place. Looking back, it all blurred together in a warp of smells and sensations. Gun smoke, blood, Don screaming, Wickless screaming, the shot itself. He put his hand on Don's brow, listening to the man muttering under his breath. It was all nonsense, but it sounded like a prayer. To whom or what, Miskel could never know. But the man calmed with the cool weight of Miskel's palm on his forehead. He sighed, smoothing back Don's hair and then wiping the man's sweat away on his jeans. We're in a sorry state, buddy, he said. You better pull through, though. If only on my account. I'm not really up for seeing this out on my own. Coakley groaned in his rack at the other end of the train and Miskel flashed him a nasty look. All this was his and Wickless's fault, even though a few of the others on the train blamed that woman just as much. Sue, she was called. It was hard to disagree with them, after a fashion. He'd seen Wickless's face as well, and it was a sorry thing she'd done to him. Then again. Miskel walked over to Wickless's rack and rifled through his things. The man wouldn't be needing them now. There wouldn't have been much chance of him pulling through even if she hadn't thrown him overboard. The Indian boy, Elam or whatever, had reported that he'd seen Wickless laying on the tracks, his legs crushed and partially severed. The news was really a testament to how badly damaged the undercarriage was. The legs should have been sheared off just as clean as you like. What's this? Miskel mumbled to himself pulling a heavy handful of metal from Wickless's jacket pocket. The jacket itself had been jammed between the rack and the wall, not quite fully out of sight, but for sure where he'd notice if somebody touched it. There really wasn't any hiding things in the sleeping car, and none of them had crates they could lock or anything like it. Tucking things away so you'd notice if they'd been rifled through was the only way to really keep your stuff safe. That, or keep it on you. Mother of God, Miskel whispered, looking up and down the car. Wickless had crumpled several hundred dollars and who knows what worth of gold coins together in his pocket. They weren't even coins, really, but little flat bars with stamps on them. Talents, Miskel thought, remembering some long-ago church sermon. He stared hard at Coakley, wondering if the man had heard him. Wondering, moreover if he knew about the money and the gold bars. Probably not, if Miskel had to guess. Wickless wasn't one to share, and Coakley expressed only one concern after the Russian doctor had urged him back to life. Missives to the rest of the men to kill that bitch, or some such nonsense. So far as Miskel was concerned, that woman was no more dangerous than a barn owl. Not at all, that is, so long as you didn't make a rat of yourself and there was no doubt in his mind Wickless and Coakley had done just that. He tucked Wickless's money away in his own belongings, slinking back and forth from the rack in a half-crouch. He did a better job of hiding his new wealth than Wickless had, spreading the lot of it amongst various pockets and various bags. The cash he hid in the pages of a traveler's Bible some evangelist had pressed into his hands years ago. 
He kept it with him sometimes when he went drinking as a prop in case he needed to beg for leniency from some authority or another. The rest of the wad, or wads, Wickless had spread all this between two pockets, were a series of papers, letters or the like, doubtless stolen along with the gold. Miskell doubted there was a soul on earth waiting for a letter from Colt Wickless, or whatever write the man. He opened the topmost papers, most of which were debt reminders but apparently the polite sort wealthy men sent each other. Given the tone, it was clear the writer was a man well aware of his own fleecing. Most of the notes had responses written at the bottom of them or were copies in type of a letter that had been sent earlier. So Miskell had grave clarity when it came to figuring out the situation between the man in the letters and his pen pal. The former was a Mr. Maynard Temps, mayor of Oliviera. The latter was Eamon Blackwell, whose name Miskell and probably everybody on this train knew. He was the owner of the Blackwell Corporation and the prime benefactor behind this nightmare of a job. Eamon, one letter read, Despite severe pushback from the mothers in town, we've reopened the mine and are now producing. I'm sure the reward on your end is substantial. However, the town is not so gay about the matter. We have resorted to Lord Belial's methods several times, and there is no more concealing the effects of his ministrations. Weakness pervades the children. Many have died, though they are mostly the sons of itinerant laborers who came to Oliviera through your men in Tahoe. Their sacrifice is efficient. Young women and men go to Belial for his musings and children to the earth. The old work at jobs we provide in town and are kept separate. Our people are hale and hearty, as you promised, and we intend to stay the course. That said, my initiation to your fraternity is not going as I was told it might. I have done the necessary rituals with Lord Belial, who was, I am afraid, not as gregarious as I thought he might be with our becoming brothers. I received no visions. I do not feel I have been burdened with any purpose more glorious than our own stated goals of reforming the Confederacy under the auspices of the current state. It is not to say I am not grateful. However, I do wish to be assured I will be assisted through any complications that arise. We, I, have a great deal at stake here. As we are both gentlemen, I assume as I send this that all my worries are unfounded and will be assuaged by your forthcoming response. Yours, Mayor Maynard Tempe's Oliviera, Nevada. Maynard. The response at the bottom read, It's very good of you to write. Your message is well received, and I assure you, everything's going according to the plans we set in motion in Washington. All my best to Doris. Miskell flipped the letter over, scratching his forehead and tossing it aside on Wickless's bed. He wondered if the man would have read any of these and fairly doubted it. That Wickless could read more than what made a bill a dollar would have surprised him. Almost on cue, Coakley began moaning in his rack. The sounds were as pitiful as they were loud. A constant, ailing wail like a cow giving birth. At his worst, Don had screamed like a man and then fell unconscious with all due grace and dignity. Even in his sleep, the man seemed to grit his teeth in silence. Miskell ignored Coakley and checked on Don. 
sighing when he saw there'd been no change. Some commotion had stirred up outside, but he ignored it. Gunfire alone might rouse him, and even then only to ensure Dawn was fine and maybe drag the wounded man out of here. It was odd, this connection that had built between them. They had always been friendly to each other, but the madness of this trip had compounded their friendship, their closeness. It was nothing short of the truth to say they both owed each other their lives. Don had dragged him out of the pub on that hellish night, and he had held Don's bleeding leg until the Russian had gotten it wrapped and sewed. More than anybody, he wanted to get through this with Don. Miskell flipped through more letters, bringing himself closer and closer to the current date with each he read. The mayor of Oliviera wrote once a month, at first, and then weekly after the first few letters. They grew arrogant, upset, and then they became great missives on the importance of trust and reconciliation. Threats were levied, doubled down on, and then retracted with great bursts of flowery language. The people in town were dying, and those who didn't die changed. The deal originally struck on the mayor's behalf only proved a half-measure, and the sickness spread from the workers to the regular townsfolk. The mayor often repeated a phrase at this point, white death, and Miskell couldn't quite figure if he was being racist or describing the otherwise unnamed disease. White death will be the end of us, our future, is how he most often used the phrase. Other than that, Miskell could only gather the most vague of symptoms. This mayor never seemed keen on describing things outright, and Miskell could tell there was some caution in the way he wrote, as though he were intent on concealing a conspiracy he was only partially afraid of, and even less involved in as the letters continued. It was clear near the end he knew his place was far, far lower on the food chain than Blackwell. In the last letters, he begged outright. Doris was deathly ill. The children were all dead or missing. Worst of all, the white death had begun to manifest changes in the sick. Amen. The letter read. God damn you, sir. I am not convinced the man to whom I now write so often is that same warm gentleman I met in Washington nearly a year ago. Our people are dying. Our people. White women. White men. White children. The scourge unleashed on those unhappy numbers brought here for work has jumped fully into the Christian population, and now we are succumbed to it. Your aid has not arrived. Your promises have not been kept. I am eager to call you a liar, sir, and myself a fool for believing you understood and supported the progression of white Christian values in these dark post-revolution years. Our noble cause will never be lost, but I will be lost my beautiful Oliviera will be lost. Time narrows like the threads on a screw. My Doris, who took you in at our apartment in Washington as though you were her own brother, has undergone disfigurements unlike any I have ever seen. Her body warps and writhes as though the devil himself were redrawing her from the inside. Our last remaining children... The pen paused here leaving a great blotch of ink. Furious scribbles lined this piece of paper and the next where this mayor had crossed out his thoughts. Some hints of them bled up through his obfuscations. Livers lying outside the body. And 
feeding on blood and screaming through the night. But that was all ahead of the final paragraph. It seemed that at some point, the mayor had outright dumped his entire inkwell onto the page. The last words were written a shaking, furious hand. I am unable to move from my chair for long periods of time now. And when I do, I feel a great stirring within myself. I spend those long hours listening to my wife dragging her body around the lower floors. Perhaps it is here you will find me. Should you ever return. The note wasn't signed and there was no return message. Probably it hadn't been sent before Wickless found the man's papers. God alone knew what Wickless was doing when he came across them, but Miskell didn't in the least believe that scoundrel did so honestly. He thought for a long time about what he might do with them, and then decided to put them back into Wickless's possessions. The meanings of the things were confusing enough, and with all the bad blood brewing, it wasn't wise to invite undue attention. Dawn had shifted from feverish delusion into actual dreams while Miskell read. Miskell could see his chest moving, but knelt to check on him anyway. He breathed with an even rhythm. The two of them were neither young nor particularly attractive. Time and hard living wore any man's face out. But Miskell thought Dawn seemed no less peaceful than an angel right then, despite the sweat and the occasional pained grimace that flexed his jaw. A pistol burst cracked off just outside the windows. Miskell flinched and fell over top Don, trying to cover him until the gunfire stopped. Nothing seemed to have so much as touched the train, much less punched through, but it was best to be safe. Miskell! A weak voice called from the other end of the train. He glared at the shadows where Coakley was laying. He needed to check on the security car to see if he could get a gun for himself if they were attacked again. Coakley grabbed his panned leg as he stepped by, giving him a direct look. He was no less sweaty than Don, though somehow getting gut shot nearly bleeding to death in a horse stall hadn't worn on him half as much. The man was hurt, sure, but probably just a few days from getting back on his feet. Now, though... Where are you going? He asked. Nowhere, Miskell replied. Get back to sleep, you wake Dawn. Coakley narrowed his eyes at Miskell and then looked up at the flat bars holding up the bed above him. You hear them shots? He asked. Yeah, now let me go. Look at me, Miskell, Coakley said. Miskell obliged him. Coakley nodded. We? Colt was right about that bitch. About all them back-enders. He gritted his teeth either from the pain in his belly or the memory of what Sue'd done to him. They aren't like us. They aren't real folk. Decent folk. Look what they did to me. You were going to let Wickless rape that girl. Miskell hissed. She got over on you. That's it. That's it? Coakley almost shouted. What if we'd done her like so? You could call it what you want, but it would have fixed her. And I saw them kind need a good fuck to straighten them out. Put all that aside, you see how she done us. Miskell looked away. How she done Dawn? Miskell's eyes flashed back to Coakley, white hot, which made Coakley nod. You see, he continued, you know it. They all ain't right. They got their own rules. They don't want to follow ours. And their own justice when we step out of line. 
What court says it's fine to gut shot a man over a little thing like we did? She ought to just cried a little like any other girl. But instead she cut Colt's face off. Is that who you want to be in with? I'm in for myself, Coakley. Miskel replied. I'll answer to you and nobody else that doesn't put their name beside mine on a pay stub. You understand? Fine. Coakley replied. But you'll regret it. They'll get together and it'll be the end of all of us up here. He coughed and groaned, holding his hand over his mouth. You could do her in right now. I bet she's still out cold in the back room. I heard him talking. You would be doing her a favor. Put her down like a rabid dog. No place for women like that where we're heading. And where are we heading, Coakley? Civilization, the man replied. Miskel shook his head and walked to the door, looking through to see if anybody was coming from the security train. Outside, he could hear splashing and yelling. Coakley was right. The entire world was distracted now, and if he wanted to do something, this was probably the best time. Miskel stepped back and craned his neck to make sure Dawn was still asleep. He was, twitching his way through a dream like a damn dog, in fact. Miskel chuckled to himself. (laughs) Civilization, he muttered under his breath. How's that? Coakley asked. Miskel turned, grabbed the blanket roll off Penbrook's old rack, and started suffocating Coakley to death with it. He held it over the big man's face for what seemed like forever. Weathering a few weak blows and even punching Coakley in his gunshot wound when the man managed to get a hand under the bedroll. Then it was quiet, save for the occasional blissfully unaware snore coming from Dawn. Civilization. Miskel muttered one last time, the consonants separated by heavy breathing. He watched Coakley's face a while to make sure, nodded to himself, and went to find a gun. West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, and produced by Tyler Bell. Sound design, original music, and foley by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. 
All content herein copyright WSF Productions 2023.